My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. I'm speaking to you, as you probably know by now, from my home, where I also work, where I've worked since March. And as I record the intro to today's podcast, my daughter is going down for her nap upstairs. Unless she doesn't. Unless she starts screaming. And at that point, I'll have to go, and I'll have to do this later. Of course, there are other things that need to be done later, and so those things will get pushed back, and they will push back other things, and so on and so forth, until it's 6.20, and I've still got stuff on my list. Now raise your hand, if this sounds familiar to you. When we discussed the positives and negatives of working from home a couple months ago on this show, we were relying on research that had been conducted before a global pandemic. And some of that research painted a rosy picture of increased flexibility, increased productivity, increased happiness. People working from home really work their full shift. You know, the office is actually an amazingly noisy environment. So I could hear stories of, you know, the person on the desk next door to me, her boyfriend's just left her, she's in tears. Uh, There's a cake in the breakout room, Bob's leaving, come join. Nothing beats being at home with your family. What we found is that we were quite productive working remotely. That's why at the end of the year, Huda Idris won't be renewing the lease for her office. Now, though, we have current research, post-pandemic research, on what working from home today, right now, has done to our workdays. And if you do happen to be working from home right now, well, get ready to nod along with our guest, and then to maybe sigh and say, okay, But what are we going to do about it? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Jeff Polzer is a professor of human resource management in the Organizational Behavior Unit at Harvard Business School. Jeff, that's a long title. Hey, Jordan. Um, Yeah, well, in academics, we like long titles, I guess. (laughs) Well, why don't you um, tell me about the study that you're one of the lead authors on, because we've been working from home, uh, a lot of us, for quite some time now, and it was really nice to get uh, a deeper look at it. So what did that study take into account among who and where, and just how big is it and comprehensive is it? We were uh, interested in, in this whole remote work, even this phenomenon of remote work, even before the, the pandemic hit, looking at, at things like digital transformation, You know, what kinds of people work from home, prefer to work at home, do it productively. So when COVID hit and the world went through a kind of the biggest natural work experiment of all time, we shifted into a study that really tried to uh, figure out the effects of these lockdowns on people's work activities. So with that in mind, we, we were already working uh, or, or collaborating with a um, an information technology services provider right. uh, that licenses digital communication solutions like uh, email and calendar applications to a um, huge sample of organizations around the world. 
And, and we have all of the appropriate data security and privacy protocols in place um, to, to be able to use those data. So when COVID hit, we were able to acquire de-identified aggregated uh, anonymized data on email and meeting patterns hmm. for a sample of workers across 16, 16 major cities across North America, uh, Europe, Middle East, representing over 3 million people. Wow. We took a slice of time that went from eight weeks pre-lockdown to eight weeks post-lockdown. After identifying for each of these 16 cities the precise date uh, in which the, the government mandated a lockdown. And so we use those lockdowns as a, a, a way to, to get some comparability across these metropolitan areas. So as you went into this then, um, what kind of insights were you hoping to get out of it? Well, you, I'm sure all of us, and you included and me, we, we've, been, we've been hearing so many anecdotes from people about their experiences since COVID about, about their work arrangements. You, you know, some people said, Hey, I love it. I don't have to commute anymore. It's fantastic. I can play with my dog all day and I get to go down to the you know, refrigerator anytime I want. Other people were you know, the, quite the opposite. Uh, they've got kids at home who are now not in school due to, due to the lockdown. Um, they're in cramped quarters. They don't have a good office, et cetera. And they're saying, oh, this is, you know, I, I really don't like this. And our question was, what, what's going on when you look at this at scale, like at a really big scale, are we actually seeing big you know, changes in work activities? Um, or do, they, do all these kinds of effects kind of average out? And, and in fact, yeah, there's a few people with you know, vivid stories here and there uh, that have changed a lot. But on average, things are pretty much like they were before. People are, are just doing the same thing, but from home. Yeah. And so we, we you know, wanted to utilize these data to, to try to get a macro level answer uh, to some of those questions. So once you had the data, um, just to kind of set the table before we talk about uh, how our workdays have changed, what did you see in the average workday before the pandemic hit? Um, was it roughly in line with expectations, you know, uh, nine to five, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, yeah. You know, the, the, you know, an example would be the average workday span was about 9.8 hours across these 3 million people. Now, does that include commutes? That does not include commutes. Okay. Yeah. And in fact, our measure of workday span is, is a proxy. It's an indicator. And it's a particular type, given the data we had. Like any of these, uh, any study has to use some, some kind of measure, almost always imperfect. Our measure, wh what we did was we said, when it, what's the timestamp of the first email or meeting of the day and the last email or meeting of the day? and use the difference between those as our length of workday. Immediately, I'm sure you're thinking, well, hey, yeah, I log off email and calendar, but I still do some other work at night. That's exactly what I'm thinking. Yeah, that, that, that is not captured by our measure. So there's some error in the measurement. Maybe we're understating it. But if you just look at that measure before, in the, in the eight weeks on average before lockdowns, across all these people, uh, the average workday was about 9.8 hours. And, you know, we have different average meeting length was about an hour on average, uh, slightly over an hour. So you can look at different, you know, a lot of these different measures. And 
and and figure out whether you know the the pre-lockdown metrics kind of resonate but here's what i would emphasize though whatever these averages are there's really wide variation as you might expect I was just going to say, I'm now uh, opening my Outlook and going back to, to try to count how many emails I sent yesterday because I want to see where I fall on this. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, we believe me, as researchers, we did the same thing. Uh, and most people and most people do. But um, that's where we really emphasize caution. It's, it's an estimate based on a sample of people. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it represents these particular people. But we really, you know, we really need to emphasize the the range. There are a lot of people that are working, you know, longer days than that in our sample even, and lots of people who are working shorter days than that. So individual results may vary from one person to another, one company to another, uh, et cetera. But broadly speaking then with that as the baseline, what did you see uh, change when people started working from home? Well, the, the, a couple of the, the, I think most important findings. One is the the workday span did increase on average across the three plus million people um, by 48 minutes. You might be saying, well, uh, that's not, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I work about an hour more a day now, uh, but it's not that big a deal. Across three million people across the globe, there's, there's a lot more time being spent uh, in, in a typical workday thinking about work and being on email uh, checking in on your email, sending emails, yeah. being in meetings, you know, outside of the normal, normal working hours. Um, well, that's, that's kind of what I, um, struggle with because if I had to answer this question, obviously you'd just be doing it by looking, uh, at the figures in my email, but you know, I would say that I, I probably work more, but it's because I'm stopping and starting throughout the day. Cause we have a toddler at home and you know, et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't know if I'm actually working more or if the interruptions had, have just pushed the date, uh, the timestamp on my last email further back, you know? Absolutely. And, and we don't, and, and that's something we don't know. Maybe people are taking, you know, are having lunch with their families and dinner with their families in, in ways that they didn't before when they were at the office. Really granular data on people's work days um, are really hard to get. I, I've got colleagues who are doing ethnographies, for example. You can shadow people. You can certainly ask people on a survey, but then it's pretty hard to do that with 3 million people. I want to be clear about the reason, you know, to describe this measure really, really carefully is because we don't know what's happening during the day, we can say the length of first, you know, first email or meeting to last email or meeting is, has increased, but we don't have information in this particular study on what's going on between those. And by the way, some of it might be, you know, during the day, people do personal things and, and now because they're at home, they can do lots more of those uh, very readily. Mm -hmm. they're, the blocks of time when you're working may, may be different as well in terms of uh, you know, are there blocks of focus time where you can concentrate on the individual work? Yes. Or are is your day riddled with, you know, meeting after meeting, email after me email? And, and so how people break up the, the time in their day uh, is something that certainly we're interested in, in understanding more, but we may need further research uh, complemented with different methods uh, along with some of the digital data uh, that we're able to access to, to, to really look into that. Well, what about the sheer volume then? Um, if we're spending more time, you know, are you also seeing more meetings, more emails, et cetera? The, 
Other uh, findings that we think were most interesting were on meetings. There are, there are a couple patterns that, that stood out to us. One is, yes, there are more meetings post-lockdown. Mm-hmm. Those meetings have more people in them, um, but those meetings are also, on average, shorter. Huh. The p- overall pattern of meeting activity has changed, and those changes have stayed in place for the most part across the eight weeks, all the way to the end of our, our time window, across the eight weeks post-lockdown that we have. Those patterns changed right around the lockdown, and then they stayed in place. The total amount of time people in aggregate are spending in meetings has gone down. Really? Yeah, and it's, and it's really driven by the shorter, by the fact that meetings are shorter. So even there, though there's more of them and they're bigger, because they're all, not all, but because on average they're shorter, uh, this total amount of time spent in meetings has, has actually decreased. That was one of the biggest surprises in the study. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. As someone uh, who studies human resources, then, when you see uh, findings like that, what are the implications to you? Well, the, you know, the big question is, is this good or bad? Uh, and, yeah. and, and, you know, I think... I was trying to ask it in a very scientific way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but, you know, I think, I think it's a mixed, you know, a mixed set of implications. And there's lots of nuance and, again, lots of variation. But, but think, think about a couple of things. One is, are shorter meetings good I think so. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's there's this, even before COVID, we were studying this idea of collaboration overload. Hmm. Too many meetings, meetings that are too long, uh, too much email. You know, we, we spend so much time in meetings and on email that we, we don't get that concentrated effort uh, on, on kind of the deep work that we need to do. So, you know, in that context, are shorter, you know, are there a lot of meetings that are probably too long to begin with? You know, that this just is purely my intuition, you know, and based on talking to lots of people across different industries. But but I think that's something that, you know, that could be good if we if we keep that. Are there too many meetings? I don't know. Be, be, partly the you know, a lot of these meetings, you know, why are there more meetings? One reason is because they're replacing in-person informal interaction in the hallway that we used to be able to take care of things at the you know, in the office just by running into yeah, people or just walking by a person's desk and saying, hey. Absolutely. Or you go to the cafeteria and you see three different people and you talk to them and resolve little things and now you don't need to meet with them. You know, and that's that's fantastic. Now, maybe in order to resolve those things, maybe you can do it through chat or phone or email. But, you know, maybe to get somebody's attention and to really have a discussion, you need to schedule it now. So, you know, that that could be the case. It's also that there are a whole host of new issues. You know, we're living in a pandemic. How do we react to it? What about our customers? What about our hiring? There's all these decisions that, that are up in the air mm-hmm. because of the pandemic, and that might cause us to need to, to meet, meet more often. So, you know, I think there's been a lot of reactivity by necessity in organizations because of the pandemic. And, it, and as things start to play out, a big question will be, whether people become more thoughtful and purposeful 
about how much they meet and how long those meetings are and, and you know, which, which type of communication media they use for what type of decisions. So much of our, our um, daily life is driven by habits and patterns and cultural norms that are just kind of in place and we don't really think about them that much. I think for sure it would be good if the pandemic causes people to rethink their priorities and how they're accomplishing those priorities. And maybe the pandemic, you know, will have a silver lining that, that it will cause more, um, more alignment around those, those kinds of things. Well, that's kind of the last area um, that I wanted to pick your brain about. And this is less about the study itself and, and probably more about um, just the work that you do in general. And I think it was uh, about six weeks ago, you know, as we were settling into this, um, we did an episode about working from home and and we spoke to someone who had done a study um, in China, but well before the pandemic, just about whether or not employees working from home were more productive. And study found that, yes, in fact, they really were. And most employees preferred it. But um, how does that compare with working from home during a pandemic? And, and how would you go about measuring that now when, um, you know, everybody's life is so different as we we've been discussing? It's a great question. And, and one that, 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 in fact, that those types of studies that you referred to about, about working from home before the pandemic, that was one of the reasons we wanted to get some of these measures now. Um, if you think about those studies, which, uh, you know, some of that I'm aware of were very well done, but the people that are working from home tend to be those who prefer to work, who, who are raising their hand and signing up when the company says, you know, who would like to work from home? We're, we, we're instituting a new program, a work from home program. Who wants to sign up for it? Right. It's the, the set of people in the firm who say, hey, I'd love that. I've got a good home office. You know, my kids are at school or I don't have kids. You know, whatever it is, the conditions are conducive to being productive at home. I've got a long commute. It'd be great not to do that. Yeah. So even with the careful designs that some of those studies put into place, it's still a set of people who who to some extent are choosing to work at home. And so when they find that they're more productive than they were at the office, that's fantastic. And, and there might be lots of people in other companies who, who would also choose to work at home and companies should consider that. Um, but this was, this was fundamentally different. Yes, you had a set of people that were delighted to, to now be able to work from home, but you had a whole lot of people who had no choice. Um, and everyone was forced to, to go home immediately, you know, in a very rapid time, you know, amount of time set up and start working from home. Uh, so, you know, I think some of the variation that we see in our, in our data reflects the variation in people's home situations in their preference, you know, for where they might work. And if you're in a company and some people are working from home and some are at the office, it, it can potentially kind of create this divide, yeah. you know, and it's like, okay, so, you know, we're having a meeting. Do we need to do it? Do we need to have, you know, the video conference set up? Well, yeah. Cause you know, Jordan's working at home today. So if we want him in the meeting. We got to have, you know, get the screen set up. This was also different in that because everyone was working from home um, companies really had to rethink the way they were operating. And, and there was, there was no, none of this, you know, kind of like, you know, us versus them, those who work from home versus those of us who are still stuck at the office. That kind of thing, you know, isn't in place anymore. So, um, so this really was a different, it, it, it became really hard to compare 
uh, the results now to some of those previous studies. That's fair. One of the things that was happening uh, at our office before this happened is because uh, we work as a media organization, we have team members from around the country working at different radio stations and wherever, um, on some of our larger meetings, uh, as opposed to having the video conferencing up and uh, our big office meeting place, we would just do video conferencing to sort of eliminate that two-tier system that you just mentioned, like as a proactive way to not feel like, well, these people can just chat because they're in a room and these folks just have to wait on the call. I like that idea personally. Um, and, and I think that's one thing we could see change once offices open back up and some people come back is that now everyone is starting to become become accustomed to video conferencing mm-hmm. um and you know there are norms now around how to do it well it's like remember to unmute yourself and raise your you know what whatever yeah. the norms are now we have norms around how to do this this video conferencing thing and there's no stigma anymore and there's no stigma at all uh and in fact you know that that also applies to like oh my my kid just ran through the background you know of yeah. my of my office <laughs> and and you know it used to be a big deal and now it's, now that's the best part of the call now that's the best part of the call and it's no you know it's no big deal i mean my one of my personal questions is what about what about the formality of our wardrobes i love not not dressing up at all and i'm wearing a hawaiian shirt right now as i talk to you for the record exactly and 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 it's not that no one ever did that before it's that when when someone wore a hawaiian shirt before that was a big deal so i think that could you know the the video calls could be much more normalized improve efficiency in a lot of ways um still be pretty effective because now we have new norms about how to do them well and people are comfortable doing them and eliminating these divides between okay we're the ones at the head you know at headquarters all sitting together uh and the rest of you are are um you know out there somewhere but kind of second class citizens well my last question is um somewhat related to that is just how much of these practices um, are companies likely to keep and how how many of them will just push for a return to normal? You know, knock on wood, obviously, uh, we get a vaccine and a return to normal is possible. Are companies that either you talk to in the course of doing this study or, or other companies really digging in to see um, what's productive about this that they can keep? And like, will policies change or will ju- it just be more of an informal thing? I think we're going to see the the full range of responses. Some companies already have have announced that this work from home um, practice is going to be permanent. They're not planning to come back, you know, or to require employees to come back to the office. Other other companies can't wait to get people back into the office, and it's just a matter of making sure it's safe to do so. You, you know, but the dynamics are going to play out in in the sense that people who, to the extent that people get used to working from home and they like it, and they don't have to commute, or maybe even they can move to a different city with, with uh, different cost of living, et cetera. They, and they're talented. You know, this, this question of being able to work together from anywhere has lots of advantages for lots of people and for companies who can make that work. It's often, in fact, easier to measure some of the, um, the more immediate uh, tangible work that's being done, although that's still hard, than it is to to measure like what is the benefit of run being able to run into people at the cafeteria. Right. I miss that. Yeah. And and you know that for a lot of them that that it it's fun. 
You know, it, it can be motivating. Um, it, it, can, it can be energizing. It also, by the way, even if, even if I run into somebody at work who I know, we get to say hi, chat about, you know, whatever's going on that, that day, um, and we're not doing any work together, you say, oh, well, there's no immediate work benefit. But what can happen is that the connectivity across the organization keeps growing mm-hmm. through, through little interactions like that. So three months from now, when I'm working on something and say, hey, I need, to, I need to ask somebody in finance about you know, this question. I'm like, hey, I know. I'll talk to so-and-so who I now have a relationship with through you know, the, the fact that we run into each other at lunch. So that, that connectivity can be hard to... You know, it can be hard to quantify those benefits, but but there's a sense, there's lots of intuition out there, and a lot of it probably right that 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 matters for our ability to execute our current work, to be creative and innovative uh, as we go forward, and to be adaptable um, and in order to face new challenges. So that you know, there there are these countervailing forces of all sorts, and and that's why it's complicated. Uh, and that's why I think there's no, you know, convergence right now. And here is the answer to this issue. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see how it plays out in different organizations and, and try, to, try to do the best we can to figure out uh, what works and what doesn't. Well, uh, maybe we'll talk about this again down the line and we'll see if uh, we're calling office to office or home to home. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks so much, Jordan. It was a, it was a pleasure uh, to talk to you. And keep wearing those Hawaiian shirts. Jeff Polzer of Harvard Business School. That was the big story recorded from home, as always now. If you would like more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can also find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can email us. The address is thebigstorypodcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. You can also find us in any podcast app you choose. If it lets you, leave us a rating. Leave us a review. We read every one, as you know. I should start reading them out because you guys have left so many good reviews. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together, and we were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.